When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Faith in anything is its own special form of madness. It's a challenge to entropy, and entropy takes no challenge lightly. If there's any better metaphor for this struggle than trying to make a big budget movie with even a shred of integrity, I haven't found it. On the one hand, you've got this impossible dream, this faith in the beautiful thing that's supposed to emerge at the end of the process. On the other hand, the process is a hellish sausage-making machine of studio bosses, financing, and acts of God like four days of flash flooding in the middle of your big shoot. You might as well be Don Quixote doing battle with a windmill. What kind of masochist would put themselves through that? My guest today, Terry Gilliam, is that very masochist, and we should be grateful because his stomach for the fight has given us movies like The Fisher King, Brazil, 12 Monkeys, and Monty Python's The Life of Brian. And now, almost 30 years after his first biblically disastrous attempt to make it, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. Starring Adam Driver and Jonathan Price. The movie is as funny, thrilling, and unpretentiously deep as the best of Gilliam's work. It's also kind of like one of those Russian matryoshka dolls, a film inside a film inside a film, all of them metaphors for the holy folly of believing in anything at all. Welcome to Think Again. What an intro. Your use of the uh, analogy of Russian dolls is very good because the film kept growing over the years. I mean, literally, it's 30 years since I called the executive producer of Baron Munchausen and said, I need $20 million. I have two names for you. One of them is Gilliam, and the other is Quixote. <laughs> and Jake, who was my executive producer, says, Don, you've got it. So I had the money 30 years ago. Right. And then life takes over. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, the audience may not know this, but all of this is well documented in the documentary Lost in La Mancha, that many, many things went wrong with the production. Watching that thing and watching you there in it, you have this sort of like bemused ability to not, I mean, you're sometimes you're cursing and sometimes you're upset, but for the most part, you seem to be like, okay, all of this stuff is going insanely wrong. Like, and I thought to myself, how do you do that with that level of pressure and intensity? Are you just a Buddhist? or something, life just kind of, you know, happens? I, I, or... I am a, I'm a fatalist. I think that's really what it comes down to, a fatalist. I'm always, whatever I'm doing something, I'm always thinking about how it's going to go wrong. So I've accepted the fact it's a disaster before it happens in a strange right. way. It does, as you say, it doesn't make me crazed and virulent when it is going wrong. But I'm not surprised when it goes wrong. When you mentioned in your intro the word entropy, yeah. it is what it's all about. We're subject to entropy and we're fighting it all of the time. Mm. And one thing that I understood from your autobiography, it seems like, and I don't know whether this is just making the best of reality, but it seems like some part of you enjoys and is activated by challenges. Yeah. You know, I think you're right. I mean, I rail against the limitations that are always thrust upon me, whether they are time or money mm. or whatever, or lack of talent, any of those things. And yet it gets my adrenaline going. Right. And when my adrenaline 
adrenaline gets going, it seems to take over all my double thinking, all my concerns. It just drives me like a, a, a drug addict. <laughs> and I love adrenaline because to me, it's the business of stop thinking and just do. And hopefully, if you've prepared, if you've got enough stuff inside, enough clarity of what you're trying to do, yeah. you can find ways around. Brick walls I find interesting because they block the path that I've been planning for some time. And I used to bang my head endlessly against them, but I've gotten better at finding a way around them or over them or under them. So I mean, it's hard enough, I guess, to make a big budget Hollywood movie anyway, but you do some of that stuff to yourself in a way with this maximalism of your style, just like piling and layering things on and complexifying them, right? I'm, as we're talking today, I'm wearing an Alice in Wonderland t-shirt and I, your first, the first, I don't know what, a visionary production that never happened was <laughs> was going to be a summer camp for the arts yeah, kind yeah, of Alice in Wonderland, yeah. right? That was just no. so over the top, it was literally impossible. It's one of the great, <laughs> I mean, that book is just, uh, it's, it's, it's my Bible in a strange way. It's, so it's, it's the absurdity of life, the impossible, the misunderstanding of things, how you see things in ways that are not normal or, or uncommon ways of viewing the world. That's really important. And I think... This is very funny. I'm going to go somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go anywhere, I'm going to be yeah. critical about a friend of mine, Tim okay. Burton, his Alice in Wonderland film. I saw a film that made no sense. That's different from nonsense. Right. No sense is very different from nonsense. Alice is about nonsense. I was actually marveling the other day. I was remembering Lewis Carroll and thinking about what polymathic gifts the guy. I mean, he was a logician. He was a mathematician. You know, we, he gave us this hallucinatory, crazy thing, mm -hmm. but but he also had this incredible grounding in mathematical logic. Totally, and he yeah. had this obsession of this little girl. And all you could do is try to make her love you by telling her tales, inspiring her imagination. Right. And that's, it's sad and it's beautiful. I was in a bar the other day and I was alone and I was overhearing two people talking. One was an older attorney um, who I think was hitting on a younger female attorney. But the important part is he was telling her that there are apparently, apparently this is well known, there are two kinds of Muppets, chaos Muppets and order Muppets in Jim Henson's universe, okay? Some whose job is to create chaos and others whose job is to create order. And so I was wondering on the way over here, which are you? Are you a chaos Muppet or an order Muppet? <laughs> I think I think I think the chaos I'm probably the chaos Muppet that feeds on order. Or maybe mm. I'm the order Muppet that needs chaos to survive. I'm both things. I think it's what always intrigues me is like the, the, the Hindu god of Kali, who is both the creator and the destroyer. Right. And it's this conflict is what makes life interesting. It's what we all go through. And that's in the case of Coyote, look at Coyote, yeah, the dreamer, dreamer, the fantasist, the guy who is imagining a more noble, beautiful world, like the world of chivalry. And yet there's Sancho by him, who is the other half of the Coyote story. He's right. the man with his feet on the ground, the realist, the pragmatist, and they're trapped together on their journey. There's something really interesting that happens in your The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, which reminded me in a weird way of the Fisher King 
which I loved, by the way, in college. I watched that movie a hundred times, I think. Okay, so this is probably a cockamamie theory, all right? But here's what I was thinking. In The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, Adam Driver is playing Toby, right? And Toby is a director. He kind of went on the reverse course that you went. You were in advertising briefly in the 60s, right? And, yeah, and then- And escaped. And escaped, thank God. And he's he's gone from student filmmaking, at least, to advertising. and. How many years ago is it that he made his Don Quixote student film? 20, ten years, ten previously. years, whatever previously, ten, yeah, right? Yeah. And essentially, it has this act of fantasy, this act of art of his, has destroyed some lives. And then in the Fisher King, you have Jeff Bridges' character Jack, who also through his art, as it were, has destroyed lives. Yeah. You know. And so I, I was looking at this and I was thinking about guilt. Y your job is to kind of like come up with these grand creations. You sort of like steamroll over the world. You get all this money, you do these, th you know, make the thing happen. But I'm not trying to psychoanalyze you. I'm just wondering whether there's something in what I'm sensing. No, what here. you're saying is interesting, it's strange because we had a screening of Quixote a few weeks ago in, in England, and somebody brought up the Fisher King connection, uh. which I had never thought about. It is the same story. It's about guilt is so much at the center of the thing. It's about romance, love. And there's Perry, who's like Coyote, who believes in rescuing damsels from insurance buildings and, <laughs> right, right, right. and all of this. And they are so similar. It's What's horrible about it is my wife always says I make the same film, just different costumes. And this is <laughs> an instance of that connection, which I wasn't aware of until a week ago when somebody mentioned this connection, and you've picked it up as I well. I mean, I would argue that they are for sure very different films, but they're, mm. they're just strong symbolic echoes there. And I was thinking about something you said in your autobiography. You started out toward a humanitarian path. You were going to go, what, what, you went to college on a scholarship. A yeah, I, was, I went to college on a Presbyterian scholarship. I was going to be a missionary. Yeah. I was going to bring good to the world. Maybe Jesus as well. I don't know. And so then, Monty Python, you're thinking satire is conservative and in some ways reinforces the values of the dominant class. And so you wanted to make a different kind of movie. I wondered whether that guilt thing, whether there's a thing in there about art making and ambivalence in a sense, you know, on some level about what impact it's having on the world, on others, I, you know, on, I know. on yourself. I mean, yeah. uh, to me, it's more about responsibility. The power we are wielding when we do these right. things, make movies and the effect they have on people. And I think if they're having a negative effect and you have any sort of humanity left, you should be trapped in your guilt for a while. And I also, again, this Christian background of punishment, of suffering, of, right. of sacrifice. These are words that keep popping Atonement. up in my films. Atonement. All of those things, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And grace is the most beautiful world of all of them. <laughs> the first time I went to India years ago, that's when I first saw grace. I felt the Indians had grace mm. because they were living in poverty. It was really hell there. People, you know, beds are slept in 24 hours a day. You, you, new shifts keep coming on. Old ladies are running out in the middle of traffic in the middle of Del Delhi to pick up some cow shit for cooking that night. And yet they do it with a smile and a a sense of grace. Now right. that, I'm gonna go down some dangerous roads. Yeah, go, go right But here we go. When I was 13, went to Hot Springs, Arkansas, where my grandparents lived. My dad's from the South, from Tennessee. And okay. my grandparents were, well, my grandfather was a preacher, a Methodist preacher, or Baptist, I can't remember. But I remember, went through Hot Springs, and it was 
so civilized, so graceful, so gentle, genteel. People on the right. streets, it didn't matter what color you were. Everybody was, good morning, sir. No, the difference, which took me a while to understand until <laughs> later, till Rosa Parks got on the bus, is that as long as everybody accepted their place in the, the stratum, then you could be graceful. In India, the caste system, I'm convinced, is one reason that keeps the place from exploding. If you're born mm. into that caste, you stay within those limitations. It's when we come and become people like Americans and think any of us can be the president, can be anything. Then it gets difficult. So now we've given people hope and dreams and possible frustration and anger, and it goes on. I think the world I experienced in Hot Springs, it was almost like an antebellum South in some weird way in my head. Sure. I much prefer what came after Rosa. I think Rosa Parks is one of the great heroines of the modern world because suddenly, no, I'm not going to sit in the back. I am as good as the guys up front. And of course, that brings lots of chaos and frustration yeah. and anger and danger, but it's part of the chaos that brings a new order. You can't swim upstream against entropy without some suffering coming uh, as a result, yeah. without some struggle. Maybe as an American going to England. You grew up in Minnesota, right? I've never grown up is the problem. When I came to England the first time, I was referred to as a monosyllabic Minnesota farm boy. Now, I'm a country boy. That's where I began. I love growing up in the natural world. Dirt, right. moss, swamps, rivers, all trees. I, mean, I come to New York like I am at the moment, and this is a mammoth speaking. <laughs> This is, we should be, are we proud of this is what we've created? <laughs> well, David Attenborough You don't is, love New York, huh? No, well, I, re I react to New York is what I do. I mean, we were walking in the park this morning. Central Park is quite an extraordinary place in the middle of this man-made, the sun is blotted out by the buildings. And yet there's a bit out there with granite coming up, up out of the ground. There's grass, there's squirrels. And it's fantastic in the middle of this man-made world. There's a bit of nature out and, and speaking of order and chaos, yeah. Frederick Law Olmsted, you know, who made mm. Central Park, he actually ended up liking Prospect Park, which he did next, better because it was more wild and less Baroque and less sort of, you know, organized. <laughs> Yeah. It's a fine line we tread, yeah, yeah. and that's what we do. I mean, you know, David Attenborough's got this new series out on Netflix, Our Planet. Oh, I saw that, yeah. Just, it's I incredible. saw it come up. I haven't yeah. seen it it's yet. It's got yeah. to hopefully make a difference, but we can't really stop ourselves. We are a very dangerous species. Arthur Kessler, years ago, used to think mm. that we were one of nature's dead ends because our brain structure, we've got our spinal cord, the most basic, then on top of that is the reptile brain, right. and then above that is the horse brain, and finally the human brain. Now, the lower brains have got a lot of connecting tissue. The human brain on top doesn't have enough connection, not enough <laughs> wiring with the, the more primal um, versions of ourselves. And he thinks we just might be a dead end. An interesting, <laughs> an interesting experiment. <laughs> and, and sometimes when I watch the nature programs and see what we're doing to the planet, I think, I hope we are a dead end because I want this little ball of water to survive. I don't know if I'm more optimistic, but I'm more hopeful uh, at the moment yeah. on that. Uh, just in the sense that 
I hope that all of this is an opportunity for some kind of large-scale awakening. I mean, granted, human history does not inspire <laughs> much confidence. But I'm counting on the kids now. Yeah, exactly. The kids' crusade is exactly. the most... There's a Swedish girl, and then there's a 14-year-old girl in New York that sits up right. on the park there on the weekends with her placards. That's important, because I really felt that the previous generation had been so spoiled. And I thought the corporations had taken over everybody's brain. We've got lots of toys to play with, right. a lot of goodies. Right. And the goodies were all we were thinking about. <clears throat> but it's a dead end, the goodies are, that's all I can say. Let's, let's come back a bit to, to Don Quixote. Must we? We'll, don't worry, we'll veer off the path again <laughs> sh shortly. Apropos of nothing, Jonathan Price is amazing. <laughs> Every time he calls Sancho Panza his squirrel or squira, squire, squiro, or whatever. Yeah, whatever. I just laugh every every single time I was laughing. Jonathan is, <laughs> I think, is breathtaking in this film. He wanted to do it for so many years, like 15 years. I kept running away from him every time he'd knock on the door I wasn't in because he was too young. He was We're just getting a buzzing. Like, yeah, it's not the air conditioning. No, no. See, I have this power over electronic <laughs> equipment. I always make it go wrong. The number of times I've done interviews and somebody who had their recorder uh, recording the interview got back home to transcribe it, and it was empty. Excellent. Excellent. You've, I you've, apologize. You've, you've cursed the machine. Okay. So, so we were talking about you were talking about um, Price, Jonathan yeah, he, Price, and he, he really wanted to do this part, yeah. and he really just kept put, and I kept avoiding him. And it, it takes a long time for me to get rid of the previous image I had in my head of Quixote, which was Jean Rochefort. Right. Which, uh, he had a problem uh, somewhere, either his prostrate, somewhere in his nether plumbing, as we call it. <laughs> and yeah, he had to be also, taken away on a helicopter. We never got him back. Gotcha. But Jonathan, Jonathan was just wanting to do it. And so finally, when Michael Palin, who was the, the prior Quixote, got tired of dealing with the nonsense we were dealing with with the former producer. He went off to do something else. Jonathan was the man waiting in the wings, and he rose to the occasion. He was so funny. Every day he was coming up with new and exciting things. And I said at one point, you're channeling every Shakespeare and character you've ever played. They're all in here. Yes. Hamlet, Macbeth, you know, Lear, they're all living in this character. And I was worried about a Welch actor playing a great Spanish icon, but the Spanish just loved him because he captured the sense of what they felt Quixote should be. He has that luminosity. I mean, you, you'd follow, yeah. you'd, I would follow him off of a cliff. I think <laughs> it's just, he's just stealing seeds is what he's about. He's just a very greedy actor. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and I think he brings so much to the character that, that the script was there, but his ad libs got really funny. And he seemed to raise Adam Driver's game as well, because mm -hmm. you're up against Jonathan, he's stealing another scene, so up you come. And Adam, the two of them became this wonderful double act that I just love watching in action. Adam was doing a kind of like song and dance routine at one point, and I was just like, this is so not Adam Driver. I, his affect is so intense yeah. and dour, it was wonderful to see him open that, up in that way. That's what I love about Adam in the film. I think it shows his real range, yeah. which is far, far greater than he's ever shown before. He's a great 
comedian is an asshole at the beginning. You do not like <laughs> right. this character. And by the end, I think he's beautiful. I think he just breaks your heart. There's a bit of a Job situation. I know you like the old stories. And there's a bit of a Job thing going on there where he's yeah. laid low in a sense, yeah. you know, has to just come face to face with his own... His responsibility. Responsibility. Of other people's lives right. that he, he took on. To go back, again, a veering back of yeah, the, yeah. the reason I have this aspect in there of the damage films can do to people's life. It really was because of when we made Life of Brian, we were in mm. Scotland mm. and we were in a little village called Doom. So we'd all flounced up from London, making a movie and all this. And we buggered up a lot of lives. Mm. A lot of people trailed us back to London. People wanted to be actors, thought this would be their career. Marriages broke up and you really feel wow, we're dangerous. Film people, they come in and do these things, and then we walk away, leaving lives in shattered in many cases. You're like an invading army. I also thought of like reverse colonization, like instead of the Spanish conquistadors coming over to us, you all <laughs> went over to Spain. A bit of that. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> um, so have you been kind of working on bits and pieces of this continuously, or was, was there just a giant disconnect between 30 years ago and now. Continuous, but not contiguous. <laughs> okay, okay. Right. It's, it took years to get the script back from the uh, insurance company that had got it when it collapsed back in 2000. Okay. And then Tony Grizzoni came on board, because originally uh, I'd been making it with Charles McEwen, who wrote Munchausen with me. And then we started playing with it. And we kept stuff from the original script, but we were juggling. And it was quite late in the day, uh, I can't remember how many years ago, when we made this leap of him, Toby, the main character, having made a film 10 years earlier when he was innocent, pure, uh, optimistic, and you know, gotcha. wanted movies were everything. And that was a huge leap because before in the Johnny Depp version, it was more like Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. He got bumped on the head and ended up in the 17th century. Oh, okay. This, this stays, is a much more interesting oh, much, concept. It's much more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, and it's, again, Russian Dowley. You know, we got these layers. And it, it was also partly for pragmatic reasons. It was cheaper. We didn't have to make the world look like the 17th century. And that was very important. But the leap back to what films can do to people. And it bothers me when, I, when I'm watching Avengers and X-Men, I think these are replacing for a modern world those books that Quixote read right. about chivalry and heroism and all. And I wonder if there are any modern Quixotes that have gone crazy trying to be like X-Men or Avengers. Do you see the shift as a bad thing? I mean, the new myths as lesser than the older myths? or you As know, long as you recognize saying? it's a myth and not reality. That's the thing. Mm. I remember when my son was into video games and there's Tony Hawk is about skateboarding. And it's wonderful. You go, boom, you're flying around the place, you fly through the air, you twist, you hit the ground, right. and you, okay, there's a little bit of red there, but you don't feel the pain. And then he started doing it for real. And then he realized, no, gravity exists. When you hit the ground, it hurts and you bleed. And this is just, and when I watch Avengers and all those films, it, it's like the pain has been removed from the, the experience. Sure. Even gravity, everything is sure. removed. And that I mean, that was true me. of Superman. That was true of, yeah. you know, the car old comic books as well, no? Comic books were always blamed for a lot of crimes. <laughs> and, but they're never as powerful as cinema, I think. Cinema is such a powerful medium. Yeah. Uh, and maybe, I mean, when I see... 
a comic, a roadrunner. Wile E. Coyote is smashed constantly and comes back. That's a cartoon. You can see the difference. It's when you're doing photorealistic with people. Sure. Then I wonder how much of that is affecting your belief of what's possible. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I mean, it's. I don't think it's our privilege to know. We don't get to know, unfortunately. No. Like that's oh, interesting no. when you're watching your own children grow up. You know, my my son is playing Fortnite right now, which involves yeah. a lot of yeah. going around and shooting. Not too much blood. Not too many yeah. heads popping off or whatever. Yeah. But. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I know. I mean, there's a side of me that, I mean, I hate to even know I'm thinking the thoughts, but when some kids go in and shoot up half their school, I think, yeah. does, how much of this is connected from this disconnect that you're into with, uh, how much is about frustration at being impotent? Right. Because these films are saying we can do anything. Mm. It's mm. always been about frustration to me. Is uh, this sense and frustration is usually a sign of a sense of impotence that you have no power over the world. Right. And one thing that gives you power is a gun. It's this thing of how do you give people a sense of achievement, a sense of power without having to be dominating. I don't right. like power when it's dominating. I right. like power when it's being used intelligently, wisely, or for good things. <laughs> Certainly Don Quixote, I was thinking of while he is in, in one sense mad, but as one model of manhood and yeah. male yeah. kind of efficacy, there's a purity to the vision, you know? It, it's certainly not a bullying, it's, a, it's, yeah. a, it's an elegant. I think it's, it's, it's heroic. heroic, it's noble. It's yeah, these noble. words which are very old fashioned at all, and we're not supposed to talk like that, I know, because we're all supposed to be equal. You don't want heroes. They only depress the rest of the people who aren't <laughs> heroes. Or uh, like uh, Harry Tuttle is in Brazil. He's heroic, right. he's De Niro, right. but he makes the, the Spore and Dowser characters really pissed off because it makes him feel inferior. And we don't want to make anybody feel inferior. <laughs> I got into that discussion with a guy the other day who was a designer. He teaches his kids rugby in a school. But he can't, when you play the game, nobody wins. Even though the kids all know that that team won, the adults cannot say the word, you won. Now, this is a... I this have this conversation, not, I have this conversation yeah. with my father a lot. Right, and yeah. I'm actually... I'm a little bit skeptical of the extent to which that's actually the defining reality right now. I, I think that yeah. there is heroism. I think that, I mean, I can certainly see how a person of your generation is yeah. looking at the news and looking what's happening yeah. now and might think that, you know, basically everyone is just being coddled. But, but that's <laughs> what I liked about the, the Fridays for the, the future. That was the one thing that's given me more optimism about the future. If we've got a generation of teenagers who are skipping school and going out and saying, you know, don't fuck with our future, basically. Yeah, for everything that I think is dangerous and bad in a way about the mob mentality of social yeah, media, yeah, yeah. at least it has maybe activated that kind of righteous idealism. I know. Well, that was one of the things that a lot of things on my Facebook page say, these are spoiled kids and now they're doing this. What do they think they are? I know they're spoiled and I know social media is makes a kind of mob mentality that I do not like in any way. But if it inspires enough to get out and say, we've got a future. We've got to start discussing this seriously. And if you adults can't deal with it, we'll make some noise. Yeah, to fight for something rather <laughs> yeah. than just sort of being a passive yeah, victim yeah. of advertising, yeah. as you said. Facebook, I'm on it quite often. I do my own stuff. And I, I do it because I have ideas occasionally and I stick it up there. And I want to see what the reaction is. 
and it should be quite intelligent people because they like what I do. And yet there's so many that are just hateful. It is so ugly when people, you say something that they don't like. It become, goes straight to the ad hominem immediately. Like totally. you are a bad person. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> what is it like when you're a teenager and you're still trying to work out who you are? Yeah. And so suddenly you're being beaten up because you said something, did something, and they're really ganging up on you. It's extraordinary. I feel like it, you know, it's new. And I feel like, you yeah. know, at some point people are going to be like, I'm sick of this. What is this? You yeah. know? Anyway, we're check. back to chaos. You're going to bring the order back into this thing uh, now. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> Very serious now. One thing I wanted to touch on that I didn't was... There's a lovely thing, very interesting thing, and you sort of... How, when you first came together with the Oxbridge crew in Monty Python, you were occupying this, this position as this kind of like... You'd represent yourself as this barbarian, you know, this unlettered American or something, which is clearly not the case. I read your book. You're very wordy. I've seen your movies. You think in lofty ideas. But there is also this thing, you also mentioned this in the book, that liking to think of yourself as a craft person, liking to basically hide behind the mask of the director and sort of do the work itself. You know, you want to distance yourself, at least in the way you write, you know, in the book, from, if not ideas, intellectualism. I don't want to be caught intellectualizing what I do. I, whatever I make, it's really for a large audience, I'm hoping. I'm trying to reach all sorts of people, so I don't want to intimidate people by being overly intellectual about anything. Right. And yet I'm, a lot of critics, when they write about my films, they seem to think they're much more intellectual than they're intended to be. They're, they're smarter. They're not dumb films. But <laughs> right. I like using language, basic language, because I gave up with the other, the Pythons, rest being Oxbridge crowd, English. Their vocabularies are greater than mine. Their use of language and grammar is better than mine. So I just started taking this back seat. The joke is, it was a point when we were flying to New York, and we're on the plane the first time we did the stage show in, in the U.S., and we're flying over the Atlantic, and I, I think I said it as a bit of joke to myself, oh, look, there's a bunch of water down there. <laughs> and that became the thing that which they beat me up weekly after that. Oh, Gilliam thought the Atlantic was just a bunch of water. <laughs> Uh, and so, so uh, you get kind of trapped in what other people think you are, right. and then you become it. And uh, it's easier to play along and let them think I'm not stupid, but I'm not as smart as them. And they feel better about that. And, That's the important thing. And then also the position you occupied as a as yeah. the, the visual guy making the cartoon transitions. And that connects with something else you say in the book. You talk about not wanting to get too successful that sometimes it's actually helpful to go to have your your yeah. uh, career go yeah. in waves yeah. because you want the freedom to be left alone to do what you want to do you it's know? also the sense to be able to hold on to one day i might be really successful <laughs> It's hope, is maintaining <laughs> some hope. Because if you're suddenly successful and everything is going well, because I'm so reactive to things is what it's about. I see something I don't like, I react to it. I actually am frightened about liking things too much. Huh. So I kind of protect myself. I don't want to love things too much. I want to keep a safe distance. Because You strike me as someone who does have that tendency. Yeah. You probably I'm, do love I'm things I'm a coward too much. because I love so much. <laughs> but the fall is too great. Yeah. I want to keep the fall a shorter distance and so if I aspire too high or love too much the, oh the pain of the fall is what I'm thinking about always there's a documentary coming out about a follow up to Lost in La Mancha mm. it's called 
he dreams of giants. It's about the making, final making of the Tihoti. I've got very mixed feelings about it because it's really about one guy, T. Gilliam, and his suffering and the pain. And <laughs> I don't want, I don't like that because I, I don't complain about the pain. I think that's part of the deal. I think the deal is it's hard work, it's going to be rough. And I try to keep things funny and, and laugh about it. It's a way of protecting myself as well as making it bearable for other people. This documentary is just me. Uh, I don't want to. Angsty or something. Angsty, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I, if I'm going to be Job, I'm going to try to suffer more quietly. <laughs> That's all. And, it's, and it really bothers me. The title is called He Dreams of Giants, but I told him there's a better title. He Dreams of Giants, but Works with Dwarves. <laughs> That's a good title. <laughs> they're not going to do it because they're so determined to show the pain of my art. On the way over here, another thing I thought about was this um, Yeats poem that I love. Do you know this poem? It's called uh, The Fascination of What's Difficult. And he has this, it was when he was running the Abbey Theater in Dublin. Yeah, yeah. And it was when he was like ready to give it up and go yeah, write poetry, yeah. which is easier. And, he, <laughs> and, and there's this bit in it where he goes, he goes, my curse on plays that have to be set up a thousand ways, the day's war with every knave and dolt, theater business, management of men, I swear before the dawn comes, comes round again, I'll find the stable and pull out the bolt. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. yeah he's got it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought of you, and I thought, I thought, well, Gilliam's staying in it. It would have been easier to draw cartoons, maybe. As a cartoonist, it was simple, a piece of paper and a pen. I could do it all. But once I got into making movies, I love working with other people, mm. despite the fact there's many knaves in there <laughs> and all sorts. But I love it. I love being part of the collaboration of the, the, the whole thing. I'm the guy that gets the credit or the blame. That's my job, I think, is what it's really. Right. But the reality is it's working with a lot of people, and I'm, I'm the guy that gets to choose who I work with. I'm very lucky in that sense. And then if I've got the right gang, it's our movie. I used my daughter, not Holly, my uh, Amy, who was one of the producers on the final Quixote. She used to fall in that Hollywood trap of my movie. They, people all say mm. my movie, no matter what they had to do with it. And I said, no, it's our movie. It's always ours. But I'll take the blame. Don't did, worry. <laughs> <laughs> did you always think that way of yourself as kind of like the ringleader of this thing? Or, were, or was there a time when you were more sort of the auteur? and then had to like emerge into into that more collaborative spirit. I've always worked on my own most of the time. Mm. And then getting into Python at that point, suddenly we're part of a gang. Mm. But I was the unique one in that one because what I did wasn't what the others did. So I had more freedom than, than they did. But then when we started working on Holy Grail and Terry Jones and I were co-directing it, that was the moment I realized, okay, I know how to do this stuff. And these guys need a lot of persuading and I don't have the patience to keep persuading <laughs> for each shot why we're doing that. And and that's why I didn't direct Python again. It was easier to get professional actors who thought I knew what I was doing, and they did right, it. <laughs> right, right. They were too used to being your yeah, your team yeah. level colleagues. Or you whatever. get that was it. We yeah, were equal, all yeah, of us. Yeah. But basically, in reality, when you make a film, you can't have equality. <laughs> but then you start working with other people who come up with so many ideas. I, the thing in Quixote 
has been this long journey because at each point, new people came on board with different ideas. Yeah. And most of it really came to focus when we actually started finally making the movie. We had chosen the people, and now we're doing it, and now reality is there. You can't escape it. We shot almost the entire film was on location, and most of it was outside with no weather cover. And for once, nature was <laughs> kind nice, <to> kind, <laughs> pleasant. But nature, nevertheless, because we really were very lucky. We were so exposed. We got through it. But nature does have a great sense of humor. Because the one scene, which was our big scene, we got 350 extras, all these outrageous costumes. We're burning this this 30-meter-high um, statue. Very complicated, very dangerous, everything. That was the night rain comes ah, down. That was, is that yeah. the rain that's in the movie? Or? Yeah. yeah okay. some, of I thought you... some of it's real and okay. some of it's fake because right. we were prepared because we wrote in real rain mm. okay. <laughs> or fake rain, movie rain, and it really rained and we couldn't shoot. We had to uh. stop. And I thought, okay, nature, you've got a good sense of humor. You really suckered me into this <laughs> one. <laughs> now let's get to the second part of the show. Big Think has video interviews. Our producers have picked clips. I haven't seen it. Terry hasn't seen it. We're going to watch them together and see where we go with the conversation. This is much better than doing normal interviews. So this is Michelle Thaler, who is Big Think's favorite periodically resident astronomer. She's also a communicator for NASA and an astronomer there. And she's been asked by an audience member, is time real? Well, time is certainly real, but the question is, what do we mean by the word time? And it may surprise you that physicists don't have a simple answer for that. One thing we are absolutely sure of is that the rate of time does change. Time is not just simply a progression, like a river that keeps flowing. It can change depending on how fast you're moving through space. And this is Einstein's special theory of relativity. The idea is that the faster you go, the slower time appears to be moving for you if other observers look at you going by. So if you're on a spaceship going half the speed of light, you don't perceive any change yourself. You, you perceive time going ahead just as you always have felt it. But if people look at you in the spaceship going by... You seem to be going in slow motion. Everything seems slowed down. And, and not just you moving, but, but the vibrations of your atoms, any way you can possibly measure time is slowed down. As you go faster and faster and approach the speed of light, your time slows down more and more. And the amazing thing is that at the speed of light, time does not progress at all. So this is something that has always kind of freaked me out because there's light in this room right now. There's light bouncing off my body. That's the way you can see me. I can look up at the sky and see the sun. Light does not experience time. It's something that actually exists outside of time. And yet we still interact with it. And I've never found the right way to think about that. This effect is not just a theory. This is incredibly well measured every single day. We accelerate things in particle accelerators to very close to the speed of light. And all the processes in physics slow down as that happens. There are more everyday applications to this too. For example, the global positioning satellites that allow you to take your location from your smartphone. Those satellites are going overhead very, very fast. They're going at nearly 20,000 miles an hour. And it turns out that that's fast enough that their time is slowed down. They're actually in a slightly different time frame than we are. And we have to account for that. We have to correct for that mathematically. Otherwise, you would not get the right location. So we know that time slows down. We observe this happening all around us. 
It was a really hard thing in modern physics about 100 years ago for people to let go of the idea that time just has a rate that it flows, that in fact it can flow at different rates for different observers. Then there's the question of what is time related to space? And you may have heard that Einstein talked about a concept called space-time. He didn't believe that space and time were separate things. We certainly perceive them differently in our human brains. We can move through space, but time always seems to go just at one rate and in one direction. But Einstein thought they were part of a fabric. They were woven together. And one of the ways he illustrated this was that you have to adjust space and time so they always kind of balance out. If I am not moving through space, I'm sitting here still in this chair, then time just seems to go forward at a natural rate. Time just flows. But if I start going faster and faster, my time slows down. So in a sense, I'm moving through space very fast. So I can't move through time as fast as I might have. The two balance each other, space, time. If you move through space very fast, time begins to slow down, and they become the same thing. And now something gets even stranger, and that is that Einstein thought that the beginning of the universe, the Big Bang, created all of space and all of time at once in a big whole something. So every point in the past and every point in the future are just as real as the point of time you feel yourself in right now. Einstein believed that literally. So oh. let's talk about time, Terry yeah. Gilliam. <laughs> It's very, I mean, what she's talking about has always fascinated me. But we, we just, we know this. I mean, if I'm making a good film and you're really enjoying it, it seems to have happened at just the right time. Connected with what I'm doing and you're bored, it goes on forever. <laughs> it just seems so long and slow. I've read the reviews. That's why I know this. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. And it's right. very simple. If somebody is on my wavelength enjoying what I'm doing, the time, zips along. I think the other thing is what happens is that moment when you're in a crash, a car crash. Right. I've been in many. Yeah. And everything, it goes slow, a slow motion, and there's the other car coming toward. And I'm, I, and it's, so it's very weird. We per, so we're perceiving time differently. I mean, once you get into what she's talking about, which is really more physical. We're talking about two things, like there's the yeah. subjective experience yeah. of time, and then there's, they're trying to figure out what is time well, objectively. But, but maybe when we're, when we're having a good time, we're moving really fast, we just don't realize it. <laughs> maybe every, we're not running across the room fast, maybe everything's going on inside of us, all our atoms are really buzzing, yeah! and we're enjoying every moment of it, and we want it to go on forever. When you're directing and then when you're editing a film, you must think a lot about time and obviously pacing. And But I think about, say, like Ingmar Bergman's movies, right? They're super slow, a lot yeah. of them, like scenes from a marriage. Yeah. You know, it's just like conversations that are yeah. very open with a lot of space in them. Time slows down in a sense when you watch them, but it's not boring in that way. I'm not sure if time is slowing down in those because if you're in there, you're into it, maybe you're escaping from your inbuilt clock that's saying right. something's going on. Right. You are no longer, you, you don't exist for those moments. You're absorbed by what's going on. Our experience of time has a lot to do with the way that we sort of like consciously categorize and break down our experience. And especially in our busy lives, whatever, in the 21st yeah. century going, I've got to do this next, I've got to do this, you know, and these, pure moments mm. that you get like in a great yeah. film or in, in the creative act, those categories dissolve. And so, you know, as you said, in a sense, we exist outside of 
time. I mean, much much of our perception of time is about our sort of messed up relationship to the clock. I mean, there's a period somewhere in the last few years where I was just feeling old, and it was probably when I wasn't working because I didn't see anything happening. And the days were interminably right. long. I had nothing to escape from time, I suppose. And so time mm. just took over my life. And I couldn't believe how long they were. On the other hand, I found the days were interminably long, but the months went really fast. And suddenly, mm. I, I was like, I'm caught in this kind of weird, maybe space-time thing, or it's a mental space. I don't know what it is. But, you know, the days, can I get through another day? Oh, God, the days are excruciating, but your life overall is moving faster. And suddenly, you look, a month just passed, yeah, and yet yeah. each, each moment was unbearably long. I don't know. I mean, these are working on an emotional level, but if it all works on a physical level, as physicists talk about, because they're not emotionalists. Right, right. But, they're mathematicians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. I just wonder, do when we're excited, when we're stimulated, do all our atoms just start working faster? So in a sense, yeah. time changes speed. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I But something you just said brought me back to something I wanted to ask you about, which was, you write in the autobiography, which, by the way, I loved, and that's why I keep referring to it, <laughs> that between projects, you've, you've come to realize that you have this, you know, you devote yourself, you go totally focused on the thing, and then you need six months of just the, being in the slough of despond mm. or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> How over time have you learned to manage those periods? I mean, what do you do with it? I mean, because just I'm thinking for yeah. any any creator, anyone who's trying yeah. to do anything, it's useful to know your own rhythms. I don't think I do manage, manage them. I only know they exist. I know that the postnatal depression will come. And I also think I know that I've got to hit bottom before I come back up. Right now, I'm going through a very odd time. We finished Coyote. It's gone. The guy is not waiting in the wings for my, the, my next movie. And I'm actually experiencing a kind of free fall into nothingness. Mm. And I've never been quite like this. I'm reading books like mad, waiting for what an idea to grab me what, to what keep me from falling. What are you reading? Richard uh, like, Kapuzinski I mean, at the moment. Yeah. It's about the fall of Haile Selassie. Ah, <laughs> ah, okay. But I'm, I'm reading all sorts of stuff, just trying to find something to stop the fall. Is this a pragmatic? Like, what's the next idea for the next project? Or is this just anything? Just uh, some to idea keep to cling to, engaged. get excited about again. Yeah, yeah. To think there's a future. Mm. Uh, otherwise, it's uh, you start falling into these things. It is a pretty. So you've got to be working. You can't, you know, like in these six month periods, you don't go wander in the woods or go to Capri no. or something. You you're antsy to get work. Yeah, what I used to do and still am about to do in another week is I've got a place in Italy. Uh. I build stone walls. Uh. Manual labor, just basic stuff, touching muck, putting on top of other things. Uh, going and hacking brambles down, putting nature back where it belongs. Hey, watch it. Don't get, <laughs> don't get too optimistic. Guys like me can still chop you back. <laughs> it's like it's, at least I'm, I'm doing something. I'm involved. I'm either making something. It's about making things. I really think the more I've thought about, I yeah. just want to be a maker of things. The smartest person I met was somebody who I knew in college who he had two loves two things he really loved doing. One was surfing, mm. and the other was sculpting. So he became a fireman. 
Okay. And here's why. A fireman works 72 hours on, 72 hours off. He built himself a little studio at, at the fire station so he could sculpt for those 72 hours because most of your time is waiting to go and do something, uh, fire. And then the 72 hours off, he went and surfed. That's a smart man. It's what they used to call a hobby, but you know, I always hated that word hobby because it seems like that's your life too. What do you do with yourself when you're not doing the other thing? I mean, there's a vocation and avocation, all these different words. I I hated hobby because it was diminutive. Exactly. Yeah, this is something kids playing around with. Yeah. But it's about making things, doing things. I think that's the problem. It's not so much the meaning of life, but the ability to do things and feel you're achieving something while you're still alive in whatever form. It's both about managing time, I guess, and also about that, yes, sense of progress and growing always. This year, I'm 79 years of age, and I keep wanting to make things. I keep thinking, what can I make in the time I've got? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's because I'll go out screaming. Whatever the hell you want to, right? I mean, you've achieved so many beautiful things. So now it's just like, what is it that feels good to you, right? I am waiting for the muse. Yeah. I'm waiting for the moment when something possesses me. I'm quite happy to be possessed by ideas, books, anything, a thought that possesses me. It gets me out of this ego that keeps demanding, oh, how big are the press releases of my film? I really think escaping the ego is the most important thing in life. Well, I'm going to bring Don Quixote back in and say that what I wish for you then is faith. It happens over and over again in your life, and the muse will come. The grace of God will descend <laughs> upon will. me. It the will Holy Spirit it, will arrive. It will, because it does. You read your books, and you're, you'll find it. And so yeah. I'll be talking in tongues. Yes. <laughs> that could happen, too. <laughs> Terry Gilliam, I Thanks. have so much enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks it's for been coming. a joy for me as well. Thank you very much. <laughs> So The Man Who Killed Don Quixote is out April 19th in select theaters and on-demand video. I modestly demand that you demand to see it. I think that for some artists, this stage of angst, despondency, total dissolution into a kind of disorganized uncertainty that Terry was talking about is the necessary precursor to opening themselves up to the next big idea. I just wish after all this time and accomplishment, it could be a little less painful for him. Keep reading, Terry. Let's see what grabs you next. If you like what you're hearing on Think Again, come find me on my website, jasongotts.com. That's J-A-S-O-N-G-O-T-S dot com. Email me your thoughts, see some stuff I've done, or sign up for my mailing list and receive very infrequent emails from me. I'm back next week with something completely different, and I hope you will join me.